we've been looking at the story of God. We started last fall and we, we walked through the story of God. We started from creation and we moved our way to Christ. Now we continue in that story of God, the centerpiece of the story of God, Him coming, sending His Son to be our Savior. We handed out some of these little Gospels of Luke and many of you had them. We ran out. We have another batch, I think, coming in, and we'd like for everybody to have one. It's a little uh, unusual how it's laid out, the text on one side, and you can write on the other. And we're doing that not because we think this is the best way to read the Bible, but just trying to get you involved in reading through the Gospel of Luke with us. We made a decision this week that we can't go as fast as we thought we could. In the, in the book of Luke, so we're not really trying to get there by Easter. We will pull out the Easter text a couple of weeks before that at the end, and then we'll go back and we'll keep looking at what Jesus taught and what Jesus did. So my encouragement to you in this new year, there's always things that maybe it just hits my Facebook and my Twitter because, uh, you know, I, I'm a pastor, right? I mean, but always people are talking about reading through the Bible in a year. That's a great idea. If you've never done it, I would encourage you to do it. If you do it every year, I don't want to discourage you from doing it. But for those of you who've never done it and it seems a little ambitious for you, let me offer you one other approach. Why don't you consider reading the New Testament this year? A little easier for you to get to. Uh, there are 260 chapters in the New Testament 365 days, see, it's manageable already, a chapter a day, and you can take the weekends off, or you can catch up for what you missed, all right? So if you want to read a chapter a day, I can even make some other recommendations, maybe not reading all four of the Gospels at one time, but you can figure it out. If, if you don't mind writing in your Bible, you might want to write the month and the year right by the chapter, and that will be a reminder for you if you go back through I have some Bibles that I've made that kind of notation to remind me, yes, I've read that, okay? So I just want to encourage you to read the Scripture and read the Gospel of Luke and read the New Testament as much as you can. Now, as you read, we have said there are three things that I hope you will write down in the back of that Gospel of Luke or you'll put somewhere. Then we're going to be able to put them up here on the screen to remind you of these three things. These three things of what do I see about God? What do I see about how people responded to God? And what does this call out of my heart? What kind of attitude or action do I see this calling to take place from me? In one sense, that's going to be the outline every week of what we study together. It's a great outline for you to take anytime you read the Scripture or as you read through the New Testament. So this morning, we have come in the Gospel of Luke to chapter 3. And in the Gospel of Luke chapter 3, I want us to look at a guy named John, John the Baptist. And if you went to a Methodist church this morning, he would still be called John the Baptist. All right, a little hard for them, all right? Come on, wake up. That was a joke, all right? You know, stay with me here. But he is a Baptist because he's the baptizer. That's who he is. And this morning as we read about John the baptizer who came before Jesus I want you to join me in praying that God will use his word to speak to us in a personal way. Would you pray with me now? Lord, as we open your word, we pray that you would be our teacher. 
We pray that you would speak to us now in such a personal way that it will be like we came in this room because we wanted to fellowship together and worship together, but it wasn't just something that everyone did. It was something that I did as I listened to your voice and as your spirit spoke to me in my heart about my need for Christ. So speak to us, Lord. We wait for you now. We listen for your voice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As chapter 3 begins, we're reminded that God, as it were, had, had been silent. I mean, God's never silent. I mean, he speaks through creation. But God had been silent. There had been no prophet. There had been no word from the Lord. For 400 years after the, what we have recorded in the Old Testament to the coming of Christ. Now, I remind you that God had spoken privately to Mary and to Joseph and to Zacharias and to Elizabeth. God had sent angel to speak to them about the coming of Jesus. But the man on the street, God was still silent. But then we read in Luke chapter 3 that the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now a word from God to his people. Now, As chapter 3 begins, it talks about the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. And it goes through listing a bunch of guys' names that we can't pronounce and that we don't know. <clears throat> and so as we're reading our Bible, sometimes we just skip right over that. But let me remind you that these were in here for a reason. Let me give you the most profound reason that I know that God moved on Luke's heart to write these in our Bible. He was documenting that Jesus was, in fact, a person who lived in history. He was documenting that 30 years prior, God had spoken, and now John is coming to have a word to point us to Jesus. So for those who would try to disprove the historicity of Christ, God moved on his heart. Luke wrote it down, and we have a time stamp, as it was, for show us what happened and how that happened. Now, the country was under great oppression. It mentions the religious leaders. It mentions the governmental leaders. There was oppression from the Roman government, and there was a sense of darkness and oppression, even from the scribes and the Pharisees and the priests who were supposed to be leading the people of God. In that context of people hurting and longing, looking for an answer, God spoke and had a very specific plan. Let's look at what it says in Luke 3. It says, The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Three of the four gospel writers take time to introduce us to John the baptizer. Three of the four, the synoptic, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us about John and what he did. And Matthew records it this way. John wore a garment of what? You remember? Camel's hair. And he had a leather belt around his waist. And what did he eat? Locusts and honey. Why did he eat honey? 
because locust, though it tastes like chicken, is a little bland unless you dip it in a sauce, right? So he, that's what he was doing in the wilderness. And he had no problem getting them fried because he was in the wilderness. So he had locusts and he had honey. And everybody focuses on the weird guy. But why is all of that said about John? To remind us that he was not the religious establishment he instead was one who was crying out, as Isaiah had said, and once again, all the Gospels refer to this. He was crying out the words written in the book of Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. A voice crying in the wilderness. What was John saying? John was saying, there's a baptism for the repentance of the forgiveness of your sin. Now, what is this repentance thing? I, I thought seriously about even starting as an introduction of saying there's just some Bible words that everyone needs to know. And some of them may sound outdated, but you need, if you're a disciple, if you're a follower of Christ, you need to know these words, and I was going to make a list of some of the words we ought to know. One of those words is the word repent. Now, it may not sound very up-to-date. It may sound like it's kind of out of style, but repentance simply means that we turn from one direction to another. Now, let's, let's dig a little deeper on repentance. Remember back in chapter 1, if, if, you, if you're using this little booklet, it's on page 8. When, when the angel Gabriel came to Zechariah and talked about the ministry that John the Baptist would have, he said, listen to what was said about him. John the Baptist, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before them in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared, giving reference back to Malachi. When he preaches, John the Baptist, he said, is going to turn people's hearts and turn them back to God. So what is this preaching of repentance what what does it mean well i wrote down a few things because i know it sounds a little preachy and and i know that whether we realize it or not we all have because we live in the bible belt we can we can see driving down a road could be interstate it is between here and and north carolina where we travel it, it could be a little country road and you'll all of a sudden come across a big billboard that says repent or perish. Or you will see a guy like this on the street, repent or perish. And every time I see one of those billboards or I see a guy like this, I usually say, not helpful. I, I, I really don't think that too many people come under conviction by seeing that sign or hearing that guy. Last year, my grandson was here. He'd worked out a way to get tickets to the national championship. Somebody tells me that they're playing tomorrow night, but my team's not, so I don't know anything about it, all right? She got it, all right? Anyway, uh, we, we went to the national championship last year, 
and it was raining, and it was cold, and we were so blessed to have the President of the United States come, and it made the security 20 times, I mean, I really wish he hadn't come. Security was just terrible. It had been terrible anyway, but it was worse because of that. We were standing out in the freezing rain, crammed right up next to people, coughing, and across the street, there was a guy with a bullhorn preaching and shouting and carrying the sign in one hand, repent, and on the other had the bullhorn. And I listened to the people around me as they kind of mocked this preacher and were so glad when the police came and moved him further down so we didn't have to hear him quite so loudly. Here's the danger. We will let those guys and those signs make us miss something that is so critical and central to our walk with God. Repentance is not a billboard. It's not a guy with a sign and a megaphone. Repentance is what is required for us to turn to God. John was preaching, repent. But it also says he was preaching bear fruits in keeping with repentance. What was he saying? When you turn, something will be different. Repentance is from the uh, Greek word metanoia. I know that blesses you, but it, it's, you'll, you'll hear words that you know, metamorphosis, you, the, the change Meta, okay? And then the mind. So the combination is to have a change of mind. But it's so much more than just coming to the place to say, well, I just think I'll just change my mind about that. Oh, no. Oh, no. It's something that is gripping. It's something that grabs you and makes you realize you're going the wrong way. You don't need to do that. You don't have to live that way. You don't have to trust in those things. They will never satisfy. And the gripping of repentance on our heart not only tells us don't do that, but it helps us turn and say we need to do this. Repentance is a turning from and a turning to. If you don't get anything else out of this morning's sermon, I I want you to get that repentance is part of a two-sided coin always in Scripture. Turning from on one side, believing in on the other. It's a transfer of trust from yourself to God. It's a transfer of trust from things that won't satisfy to the one who does satisfy. And there is no repentance without true believing. And there's no true believing without repentance. They have to go together. Now you may, say, you may see in the scripture a, a believing in Jesus and not see the word repent show up. But I promise you, if it is a true transfer of trust from one thing to another, it is a transfer of trust from yourself and you're turning from and you're turning to. One more really important thing I want to make sure you get before we move from this word repentance. You may say, do I need to repent? I can't answer that for you. But I can say, 
If there's anything in your life that is not absolutely surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you need to repent. If there's anything you're clinging to, if there's anything you're holding to, if there's anything you're pursuing other than Him, and you realize that it's keeping you from pursuing Him, you need to repent. I remember trying to explain this to teenagers when I was in college in a youth pastor. And I would, I would kneel before one of the girls and I would take her hand and I'd say, Oh, I, I love you so much and I want to commit my life to walking with you and reach over here and take another girl's hand and say, Oh, just ignore that. I, I really want to walk with you. I really want to be committed to you. Now, how long do you think that woman would put up with that? If that were the approach to saying that you're committed in marriage. And how do you think God tolerates in our life an attitude that we can pursue Him and love something else equally or more than or simultaneously? I don't have to make the list for you. But it is a not only an initial response that we have when we are saved, holding nothing back, letting go of it all and turning to Jesus. If that is how you were saved, then that's how you put your trust in Jesus. You repented and you believed. But how do we live? We live a lifestyle of repentance and believing. I had to repent many times this week. Sometimes speaking harshly to my wife. Sometimes setting my affection on something that would not satisfy. Sometimes getting angry at someone else when I realize that they too have been made in the image of God and I have no right to be haughty like that. Need I go on with a list? John was in the wilderness crying, repent and be baptized. What is this baptism part? Do you think we ought to baptize you every time you have to repent of something? We wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to have worship services. We'd have to add an hour or two on every week because everybody would have to come back up here and go through the waters of baptism if that's what was required. In the initial turning to and trusting in and publicly confessing, that's what we believe is baptism. So let's talk about the repentance that John was preaching calling them to baptism baptism was a common thing in jesus day you might think it wasn't but it was but it was common in two ways that were very different from the way john the baptizer was baptizing baptism was common for a gentile to become a jew it was a part of the conversion process of someone that had not been a part of the Jewish family to be converted and they would be baptized. There's another baptism. It was a baptism that was used as a part of the ceremonial process of cleansing. One of the saddest sights you may ever see is what happens during certain festivals in places like India when the people go out and 
baptize themselves and each other in the Ganges River pursuing some kind of blessing from God. And lest you think I'm just making this up, it still happens in isolated tribes of today where parents believe that they're under some kind of curse. They'll take their newborn child. They'll take the child out and put it into the river until it gives up its life, killing that child, sacrificing it as some kind of way to get right with some so-called God. Baptism in the day of John was for a Gentile converting. That's why we see as we read the scripture that the people who claimed to be religious in their background were offended by John asking them to be baptized. Let's look at it in Luke chapter 3. Got to find the page in this book so I can tell you where to look, all right? I'm on page 26 if you're using your journal. He said to them, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up from these stones children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and the tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. What's he saying? You think you've got some kind of connection with God because of your religious background? Let's look at the fruit on your tree. All right, when we look at the fruit on your tree, we don't see any kind of root system that shows you're plugged into God. He's rebuking the religious leaders of the day, saying, what are you saying, John? Are you telling us that we ought to be baptized? And John was saying, that's exactly what I'm saying to you, because you may have Abraham as your father, but your hearts are far from God. The Old Testament prophet said it this way, these people draw nigh to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. John called for the religious people to be baptized. Now, I've got to hold on just a minute here and address what happens so commonly in our day. Children grow up in church. Children have something stirring in their lives. They love Jesus. Children go and they want to be baptized. And sometimes, like me, I I don't doubt for a minute when the pastor explained to me how I needed to trust in Jesus. I rolled out of my chair in my living room. I got knelt down. I asked Jesus to be my Savior that night. We had evening services before the introduction was over on the organ for the invitation song. I was running down the aisle. I've never once doubted that in childlike faith, I trusted in Jesus. This is not a point in my sermon to tell you that children cannot be saved. But here's the point. Way too many people claim to know Jesus as a child who don't. There's been no change in their life. There's been no transformation. There's been no indwelling Holy Spirit. There's only been some kind of joining of religion And then religion becomes the thing that they hold in the way between them and their hearts knowing God. And every time they come under conviction that maybe something's wrong between them and God, 
rather than going back to say, I remember when I transferred my trust totally into Jesus, I knew I was a sinner and I needed to be saved, they instead go, I've been going to church all of my life. I've got all of these perfect attendance pins for Sunday school. You know, I've, I've gone so much that I know that my religion has to save me. And like John the Baptist, we need to recognize we can't hold on to our religion and let our going to church stuff get in the way with us knowing God. John called for a baptism of repentance, telling them to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Now, I want you to notice that as they were listening to him, I want you to see what happened. Verse 10, the crowds ask him, what then shall we do? Verse 12, the tax collectors came to be baptized and said, teacher, what shall we do? The soldiers, verse 14, ask him, and what shall we do? That's kind of what happens when the Spirit of God convicts our hearts that we need to turn to God. We, we see it in the first preaching of the day of the Pentecost when Peter was announcing that Jesus had been raised from the dead. They were pierced to their heart and said, what do we do? When God brings us to the point that he's putting his finger on something in our life, it's an appropriate question to ask. So then what do I need to do? I want you to see how John answered it. First, he answered it in general, verse 10. The crowds were asking him, what shall we do? He said to them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. The general response is, everyone needs to humble themselves before God and quit clinging to their stuff and start cl stop clinging to stuff and start clinging to Jesus. And here's how we can test it in our life. When you look at someone who may be of different culture or who may be of different color, who may be of different language, who may be of different socioeconomic status and when you look at them and you start feeling better about yourself because you're not like them remember Jesus said there were two guys that went down to the temple and pray one of them said I'm sure glad I'm not like him and the other said oh Lord forgive me because I'm a sinner and sometimes in our daily walks we're called to repentance in general because we recognize that we're selfish and self-centered and not seeking God. The second, what shall we do, came from the tax collectors. Now, can I remind you, I'm sure we'll get a chance to talk about them again in Luke, but the tax collectors, those were the ones who were deputized by the government to go out and collect a certain tax, but their pay was on commission, okay? However much they could get out of you, they would take and pay what they had to pay that was owed and keep the rest for themselves. And the tax collectors were despised, worse than the phone calls you get all the time trying to sell you something. Yesterday, I got the fourth call from the same number, and do not hang up. 
you know, so what do I want to do? I want to hang up. But I'm, I'm so tired of this number telling me do not hang up. So I pressed zero, and it worked. It said, if you want to be taken off the list, press five. And I went, wow, that's what I've been trying to do, but I hadn't had a person to talk to, all right? I want you to think about how annoying that is, but take it up a notch. Someone's annoying you in your face, taking your money, and finally, just to get them to shut up and leave you alone, you pay them far more than you have to, and when they walk away, you despise them. The tax collectors were despised people. And yet they were coming under conviction, going out there in the wilderness, hearing this guy who's wearing camel's hair and uh, eating locusts and honey and telling everybody to repent. And the Spirit of God fell on them, and they knew they needed something, and they said, what shall we do? His response to them in verse 13 was to collect no more than you're authorized to. Pretty simple. Just take what you're supposed to and treat people with dignity. Verse 14 says, the soldiers were also asking him, what shall we do? He said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats, false accusation. Be content with your wages. We've all gone to plays where we've seen people dressed up like Roman soldiers. And you, you, you've, you've got some picture of what it was like. But the Roman invasion and control and the despising heart of the Jewish one trying to throw away the soldiers. Because they knew the soldiers could force them to walk as far as they wanted to, carrying their stuff. And the soldiers could force them to kick somebody out of the room and let them sleep in their house. And the soldiers could force them to feed them. And all of that force that they were using upon them, now the soldiers are hearing this one crying in the wilderness, and they come under conviction, and they say, then what do we do? And he said, just treat people like you ought to, and don't take what you shouldn't. Be content with your wages. Now, I want to be careful here that you not confuse the repentance that John was calling for to the repentance that could take place today if someone came to church and felt guilty because they knew they were not living in a way honoring God and decided to make a New Year's resolution to change their life. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that God changes our root system when we turn from ourselves to trust in Jesus. And the gospel is that our baptism in repentance is putting fruit on our tree that demonstrates that we know Christ. There's some parallels and there's some things that aren't parallels at all. So I want to make sure you get the difference. Now, There's a little more we need to do in this chapter because we're going to be leaving John the Baptist behind and moving on to the ministry of Jesus. But we need to see what happens. The people were saying, maybe this is the Messiah, verse 15. We're seeing such an anointing. We're seeing such a conviction. Maybe this really is the Christ. And what did John say to them? John said to them, no, I baptize you with water, but the one coming after me, I'm not even worthy to loosen his sandal. I'm not even worthy to touch his feet. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John the Baptist 
preparing the way for the Lord. It's just about to get to the place that he's going to say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John's approach to ministry might be a good approach for all of us. Prepare the way of the Lord and get out of the way of the Lord. That's what he did. He prepared the way and he got out of the way. It's really hard at times to get out of the way. Especially when you're getting your identity by being in the way. But when it comes to walking with Christ and even serving God's people. Our constant work is to prepare people to meet God and walk with God and know God. And to make sure we're not in the way of that happening. So. What happened next? Verse 21 says, When all of the people were being baptized, Jesus also had to be baptized. He was praying, the heavens opened, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus came to be baptized. Can I encourage you, since you're reading through the New Testament this year, uh, can I encourage you to do the parallel readings in the other Gospels of how they begin and what they say about John the Baptist and what they say about Jesus being baptized? Because it is a very reasonable, fair question for any of us to say, why did Jesus need to be baptized? He wasn't repenting of anything. I've, I've read multiple explanations. I don't know that I totally agree with any of them, but let me give you just a few ideas of maybe why. The scripture's silent at this point explaining it. But why was Jesus baptized? Well, some say because of the purification he was about to demonstrate, he was submitting to a law of purification to get ready to make a sacrifice. Could be imagery's right, I get it. But others say, no, Jesus was demonstrating that he would take our place when he died on the cross. The beginning of the understanding of the substitutionary death of Jesus. Remember, this is Jordan. What happened at the River Jordan? Joshua took the people from the wilderness into the promised land. A picture of going from being empty in our sin and being fulfilled in our relationship with God. Jesus going down into the Jordan took our place. When he died, he didn't just die for us. He died instead of us. He became sin for us. If you don't know the name J.D. Greer, I'd like to introduce you to J.D. J.D. is a fine young man pastoring in the Raleigh-Durham area. He happens to be the president of the Southern Baptist Convention this year. And J.D. has used an illustration of what happened when Jesus was baptized that I loved. And so I'm giving him credit, but it's mine right now, all right? He said, imagine people lined up to be baptized. 
They'd all checked in and gotten a name badge. Hello, I am. And their name's on that. Jesus shows up, and he really doesn't have to stand in line. John sees him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus starts walking through the line, taking off the name badges and putting it on him. Taking yours and putting it on him. Jay, putting it on him. Katie, putting it on him. And all of our name badges are found on Jesus' chest. And he says, let me go into death for you and be raised from the dead for you. What an incredible picture. The reason that we believe in baptism by immersion is because it's biblically right. <laughs> but let me explain to you what I mean by that, all right? We believe it because the word, baptizo, there's no question you can go read all kinds of parallel history to the Bible and see that the word baptize did not mean to sprinkle. It meant to dip or to emerge. If you had bought an electronic skillet or, or grill for your house and you flipped it over on the back it would have said in Greek do not baptizo and you would have known that it would have been alright to sprinkle some water in it but you didn't need to put it under the water in the sink you'd figure that out there's no question so why do, why do we have a confusing word because when they were translating it from Greek into English they, they couldn't translate it immerse because there were too many people that were sprinkling and so they did what we sometimes do in translating from one language to another they made up a word they anglicized the word you hear it baptizo to baptize so they made up baptize now why why do i have such a i'm not going to say I'm not trying to reject anyone who's not been immersed and say, you're not a child of God. No, because it's not a work, remember? It's evidence. It's fruit on the tree of what's already happened. But it's such an incredible picture of death into life. It's such an incredible picture of identifying with Jesus and being raised in Jesus. And I would challenge you, if that's never been your testimony, that you prayerfully consider what you need to do to give public evidence that you are a personal, private follower of Jesus. What an incredible way to follow Christ and let others know you're following him. So today, John the Baptist told us that we needed to get ready for the Messiah and so I want to go back to those three questions. I want to ask you, how do we apply that to our life? One, what do I see about God? I see that God takes sin seriously. And I see that God took seeking me seriously. I am a child of God.
How did the people respond? When the Spirit of God touched something in their life, they said, what do I need to do? And when God speaks to me and you, it's right for us to say, so what do I need to do? And you know what I've discovered? Still like a little child trying to walk with God. He only gives me one step at a time. I'm always asking him about step five. I'm always trying to figure out step ten. I'm already trying to understand what's going to happen. Nope. This. Take this step. Here's your next step in walking with me. What do we see about our heart? That we need to repent and believe in Jesus. And that every day we need to change our trusting and turn to trusting in Jesus throughout the day. And for some... There may be a call to follow this John the baptizer and be baptized yourself.